Hello, friends. We have with us returning guest, Derek Davison. But usually Derek comes in under exciting, fun, even uh, joyous circumstances. <laughs> but uh, he comes with us this week because we have lost a friend. <laughs> then you have to watch them leave out the window. That's why they call it window pane, said Eminem. Chris, please put in the Wiz Khalifa song about Paul Walker here. Rex Tillerson is no longer with us. <laughs> Derek, how, how, how are you doing on this very tragic week? I'm, uh, I mean, I'm just pouring one out for my man, Rex. He gave me my start. My first gig was opening for him at one of Exxon's annual Which Third World Country Should We uh, Overthrow This Week conferences. And, uh, you know, I've never looked back since. Yeah, Rex gave a lot of people their start, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, he just couldn't be repaid in kind. Um, he was too beautiful for, for this world, really. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. Yes, I consider Mr. Tillerson sort of like a prince-like figure in the worlds of diplomacy and uh, petroleum multinationals in that he brought a true Christian morality and purity and art to an otherwise tawdry business. <laughs> He was, uh, I mean, he was almost an ascetic in the way that he interacted with the world. You could tell he had a deep, uh, you know, abiding uh, spiritual presence. That's why nobody saw him or heard from him for (laughs) weeks at a time. (laughs) All right. So Tillerson is gone, and we thought we would give you a retrospective on, I guess you could say he's the most hapless Secretary of State we've had maybe in the last 50 years. I mean, Alexander Haig had the famous I, I'm in charge now thing, but that's that's just being stupid. I mean, that was, was yeah, just, and he probably was in charge, to be honest, yeah. at that instant when, you know, Reagan had been shot and nobody knew where Bush was. I mean, he probably was running things. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Tillerson managed to combine being kind of a hapless dope with doing, I think, like substantive damage to the State Department long term and to the diplomatic corps. Uh, so it's it's an interesting mix. So I think we should start out uh, in the Tillerson saga to give a little – I feel like people got this – the image of people got as Tillerson. It's sort of funny uh, because – Exxon as a company is just its its own state, and its people have a reputation for being very sort of swaggering, like a very Texas attitude, but also have this engineer quality. They're hyper-competent, and that they always know what to do, and they'll always get the job done. I mean, Lee Raymond, who is Tillerson's predecessor as CEO of ExxonMobil, he had a lot more charisma than uh, Tillerson, but Tillerson <laughs> had this. It's not a high bar to clear. <laughs> yeah, that's that. That is the funniest. That is the funniest thing about it. Ray, Lee Raymond was also just you know just similarly hideous, venal old man. <laughs> but compared to Tillerson, it's just like, oh my god, is it? Did I just meet David Bowie? But <laughs> Exxon, like, it, it is a very like most things in the Trump administration. It's a very Cone Brothers denouement because. You take someone from this separate world of you know private enterprise or the military or whatever, where what they say goes, they can get anything done, and they have this very ordered process to commit the evil that they do, and then they get in there and they are suddenly subservient to this guy who sort of won the presidency by accident. <laughs> This prion riddled man child who, you know, is now giving them orders. <laughs> yeah. So Tillerson's saga begins um, around two, around the uh, drafting of Dodd-Frank. There was a provision in there that would force companies to disclose their payments to foreign governments. And Exxon has a history of, you know, most noted this whole thing sort of came up because they were flagged for making payments to a dictatorial regime in Equatorial Guinea for their massive oil reserves. And... It was a sort of like reformist, like, you know, obviously these companies would find a way around it, but it was the typical like Senate Democrat under Obama thing of like, okay, who could really be against this? You know, like what, what <laughs> you know, like what would be the negative 
side of this for the world, anyone besides like ExxonMobil or GE or any of these companies. And Tillerson personally lobbied against it. And, you know, they say use use positive visualization. What you want will come true <laughs> because Donald Trump wins the fucking presidency. And a week after Tillerson is confirmed, they strike it from Dodd-Frank. It's taken out. Fascinating. <laughs> Funny how that works. I, I, I think um, I'm going to let you get into Tillerson's first uh, – We'll put it in fiscal quarters out of tradition for his old <laughs> occupation, but his first uh, fiscal quarter of haplessness. But my favorite – the thing that set the tone for Tillerson for me was during his confirmation. He got the most votes against him for any secretary of state coming in for their confirmation, I think, ever. But uh, he, Marco Rubio actually grilled him on Exxon's business dealings with Saudi Arabia and said, do you consider Saudi Arabia to be a totalitarian regime? And it was, you know, it was one of those moments that goes on, like, you know, now this news and everything. Right, right. It. And then, of course, Marco Rubio was like, all right, I'll vote for you anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's totally, especially coming from him, it's totally meaningless. I remember, like, after the election, um, I wrote for a week straight on Low Blog about, like, the various uh, people he was considering, Trump was considering for his cabinet. Uh, and it was just this like extended experience of one day this guy's being rumored and then you know the next day it's somebody else and uh, uh, you know I, I just remember the the candidates who were tossed around for Secretary of State and it was like Newt Gingrich and Rudy Giuliani and just these horrible chuds Bolton John Bolton got mentioned you know who may now be the next National Security Advisor it's just these horrible assholes and Tillerson's name got thrown in there and it was kind of like well okay I mean he's not so bad relatively speaking um, but you know he was my first like memory of him as Secretary of State is that story about the first week of Trump's presidency when he decided Trump decided to pop out of the White House and go to his hotel and have this big dinner at the steakhouse and Tillerson just happened to be there that night with his wife like at a separate table and they barely interacted with one another the entire time <laughs> and it's like okay well here's your Secretary of State right like having dinner in the same restaurant and you're not talking with him, that's probably not a good sign. I think, I mean, I think he got the job and, I mean, if you listen to him describe the circumstances under which Trump offered him the job, it's very, it sounds very similar to what Trump just did in when he accepted the meeting with Kim Jong-un, where like they were just kind of talking and all of a sudden Trump just like blurted out, well, why don't you be Secretary of State? And Tillerson was like, uh, I don't know if I want to be Secretary of State, but I guess he let his wife talk him into it. But he apparently yeah, he, had no idea going him. in that Trump was going to make him that offer. And who knows if Trump actually had any idea going into their meeting that he was going to do that. Yeah, to hear Steve Bannon tell it, it's that Tillerson flew to New York, you know, Tillerson, who is about to retire from Exxon shortly anyway, and he meets with Trump thinking that Trump just wanted foreign policy advice, and they just hit it off because they're both deal makers, you know, they're both <laughs> businessmen, and so I can only imagine what actually happened. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and it's another it's one of these decisions that he makes like in the spur of the moment, like the rare synapse fires in Donald Trump's brain and he blurts something out and makes this like spur of the moment decision and then immediately regrets it and tries to take it back. <laughs> but you can't do that when you're president. And, you know, I feel like that's kind of how their relationship played out. Like Trump asked him on the spur of the moment to be Secretary of State and then immediately regretted it and has been regretting it ever since. Yeah, Tillerson sort of got introduced into Trump world through Condi Rice because his firm retained uh, – Exxon retained a consultant consulting firm ran by Condi Rice and Robert Gates and that's sort of how they made their their approach. I mean Tillerson was – He's politically, he's one of those guys who strongly believes in this sort of like vaguely neoconservative sense of propriety. 
that we'll get into a little bit later, one that he has never, ever followed himself in his capacity as head of Axon. <laughs> you know, he, it's propriety he famous- for the little people, not, for the, not yeah. for the movers and shakers. He famously, like, bragged to Trump about how he refused to bribe a Yemeni oil minister and ended up being able to do a deal in the country. And it's like, okay, but what about those other guys you brought? <laughs> you just... <laughs> He's just one guy he didn't bribe. Probably because he was too small time. <laughs> really, but, like, you know, because Yemen doesn't really have that much to offer, so you didn't bother. But, right, I mean, you know, what about all the other ones? But, yeah, it, it seems like – so for Tillerson to tell it and for Bannon World to tell it a little bit, it's that he had this duty to serve his country. You know, his wife said, I'm supposed to do this. But uh, what is – what many people don't know is that if you are coming in from business – or any, if you're just coming into a cabinet level position and you hold any stock related to the department that you're heading up, you're forced to sell it to avoid conflict of interest. But of course, there's a provision in that that you get a massive capital gains ga- tax break right. if you sell right. all your all your equity before going in. So I would say that probably you know probably weighed a little bit on Tillerson's mind when he took the job. Well, and not I mean not only did he get the capital gains break, but Exxon stock actually hasn't done that well over the last year. So he avoided all of that. Like he avoided losing money as a result of having to divest himself. Well, you know, it's great when your your principles and your retirement plan just line up perfectly. <laughs> but so let's get into quarter one because Tillerson, the hyper competent tax and engineer, the 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 man who would make the deals, who would make make the pipelines flow, uh, he gets in there and it's not quite what he expects. <laughs> What happens until the, during quarter one of uh, Tillerson at State? I mean, the most the, the most noticeable thing about his first, you know, three or four months as Secretary of State is how unnoticed he was. Right? I mean, he was invisible for a lot of that time, and not just kind of publicly. Although there was the you know the incident where he like went on a trip and didn't wouldn't take any reporters with him and like never talked to anybody and uh, people were wondering you know w- what his job exactly was if he wasn't going to be the spokesman for uh, the administration and for the United States. Um, but even at the State Department, I mean, you hear uh you know all the sort of insider stuff that was i mean had come out previously to some degree but is kind of gushing out now that he's gone that you know i mean he just kind of locked himself in his office at the state department he never talked to anybody he didn't interact with uh uh you know with uh, like senior career diplomats um and it's for that job, I mean, you can sort of dig a hole and crawl in it if you're like the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, who is also probably getting fired, by the way, um, or you know somebody like that. But when you're the Secretary of State, it's a very weird way to approach your job to sort of uh, you know disappear for three months and say, I mean, I'll be back later, just chill out. Yeah, um, they did the thing they do at the start of every new administration, which is to you know ask for the letters of resignation from every. Assi- they have something like thirty million assistant secretaries for various departments and right, right. zones around the world, and they pretty much fired all of them. Right, <laughs> the White House accepted all their resignation <laughs> letters, but then didn't replace hasn't them. Repl- and still hasn't replaced them in many cases. I mean, they're they're just. Uh, you know, they have just kind of appointed uh, their assistant secretary for Eastern Asian affairs, which seems like kind of an important position at the time, to- at the present time. They don't have ambassadors in, uh, you know, a huge number of countries, including critical ones like South Korea. Uh, you know, and they, they just, you're right. I mean, it's sort of this weird thing where most administrations, you, you take the letters of resignation and you ask people to stay until you replace you can find a replacement but this one you know they got everybody's resignation letter and they were like okay thanks bye thanks for your service uh, check out uh and it's just a, a weird dynamic that that i think is related to the fact that trump 
and Tillerson, like the one thing that they've agreed on has been the need to downsize the State Department and the diplomatic corps for, you know, while they're simultaneously adding tens of billions of dollars back to the Pentagon budget. Uh, they, they've they decided that they need to do this reorganization, which basically amounts to a corporate downsizing. And they're, you know, they've left senior positions empty. They've uh, sort of run out a lot of the longest serving career diplomats at the State Department. Uh, and they just, you know, th- it's not clear what they're planning to do, if anything, to replace these people. Yeah, there was there was this uh, thing that happened like right after Trump won, and there was a cavalcade of the most bizarre people you haven't seen in a while coming in and coming out of Trump Tower, and the people he settled on it made a lot of sense. Like he gets Steve Mnuchin, who you could see filling the Treasury Secretary position in like a Cory Booker administration, maybe. Then you see like whatever weird multi level marketing huckster he puts in VA. <laughs> He puts James Mattis in a defense because he saw him in a meme. <laughs> but after he ran out of that, because Trump ran – Trump ran as sort of like a, a severely brain-damaged Pat Buchanan. He ran as a paleocon. Right. But the problem when you get in there as a paleocon is how many paleocon think tanks do you have to fill the positions? There really aren't any. No, I mean uh, they've gone – especially on foreign policy, they've really tended toward neoconservatism or you know just kind of balls-out intervention regime change all over the world. Like Ed Meese from the Reagan administration served on the transition team. And I think for a lot of people, me included, it was a way of finding out that Ed Meese was still alive, <laughs> which was incredible. But it was like, oh, OK, yeah, they're going to fill every – everything – they're going to run out of memes that Donald Trump can look at or he's not going to be able to get some of the meme guys in there like David Clark. Like even Trump couldn't get him in there. And so they're eventually going to have to fill them with like the Heritage Foundation choice and that's how you, you get Tillerson. There was the one – there was that brief period where he made Mitt Romney come in and kiss his ass uh, just to be mentioned in the same breath with the job secretary of state, which was kind of a baller move to be totally honest. I mean if we're going to give Trump his due, uh, making Mitt Romney eat shit was was pretty you know pretty up there in, in the, the list of things he's done. It was probably the most imaginative use of his uh, presidential powers. <laughs> but what – so – you know, Tillerson gets in there, and Tillerson, he's different than a Robert Gates because Robert Gates is, you know, ha, has would probably pursue similar policies that Tillerson did, probably not as right wing quite, but Gates was someone who spent decades in you know CIA, state, just various diplomatic roles, various government roles, and sort of knew the score, whereas Tillerson had this sort of club for growth, psychotic free market conservative thing where it was like you get in anywhere and you're like, I know the problem here. It's not efficient enough. And he hired – like that's – he brought up the thing he agreed to Trump on. He sort of agrees on cutting the State Department budget by a third and he brings in Deloitte consultants to literally walk around the office for a million dollars and right. tell him what positions he can afford not to fill. <laughs> but then the positions that – Tillerson did want to fill like he okay so he brings in Elliot Abrams and he has an interview with Abrams and Trump to put Abrams in this like assistant secretary position and that's when Tillerson tells the stupid Yemen story and Tillerson thinks okay great I'm gonna have like I can make this sort of like the proprietist neoconservative department I want to while also just tossing out the Obama holdovers and not replacing them with anything out of the, in the name of efficiency. And then Trump sees Rand Paul on Fox News talk shit about Elliot Abrams. He's like, nope, sorry. <laughs> he actually did get someone he wanted in there with Susan Thornton. Right. Despite Steve, like if Steve Bannon hadn't gotten shit canned, like she probably doesn't make it in there. But there is this recurring thing of this guy who is probably – Followed a process, albeit a very crooked process, that masks itself in this sort of business and conservative propriety, trying to implement his multi-step process in this department and just getting soundly embarrassed by the world who does no no longer cares about these processes. 
Yeah, I mean, it's just such a it's a strange mix to have uh, this guy who has spent his whole life kind of you know in the business model like working his way up where decisions are taken in a certain formal way and you know getting to the point where he was the guy ultimately making the decisions and then to have to shift into a, a, a situation where your boss you have a boss again which is first of all weird for a ceo and second of all your boss is this guy who you know watches fox and friends and that sets out his day's agenda and you know it, it must have been an incredible kind of shock for tillerson i think to come into that so one of uh one of my favorite early-ish Tillerson things, and it already feels like a million years ago, was – and I think this sort of marks his haplessness – is he meets with Erdogan for the first time and just seconds after – meets with Erdogan in America and seconds after Erdogan's bodyguards just assault <laughs> Kurdish protesters right, right. and cause an international incident. Yeah, and I mean that was the second time the, that Erdogan brought uh, – you know, hired goons basically to the United States to beat up his protesters. Uh, it happened once before under the Obama administration, and you know, it was this uh, huge, uh, huge scandal at that time. But then here, I mean, you had these guys kind of explicitly saying that they were going to shed the the baggage of the Obama administration. Obama was so uh, weak and stupid. He was trying to be friends with our enemies and he was alienating our allies, but we're going to, you know, welcome our allies like uh, Erdogan and uh, the Saudis and, you know, our traditional partners. We're going to welcome them in and uh, embrace them again. And they'll know that America is their friend again. And then, yeah, you have this incident where he has a meeting and it was, you know, out in front of the Turkish ambassador's residence, I think, that these protesters were uh, demonstrating. And these guys just come out and start you know, shoving them to the ground and kicking them. And there was even a, an image, uh, there was a video of Erdogan uh, like getting out of his car and watching what was happening and then going inside the, re the ambassador's residence. And it's just a total shit show. I mean, uh, and it, the relationship, you know, is partly uh, because of incidents like that. The relationship with Turkey is actually worse now probably than it was uh, under Obama, and it was pretty bad then. Yeah, so um, talk a little bit about Tillerson during the GCC crisis of last year because I, I thought there were so many instances where Tillerson sort of had this idea of how he was going to do things and work things out that was hinged on – this, again, very petroleum multinational attitude of like, all right, well, we can have disagreements, but we both are going to end up staying at the table because we want to get this deal done. And then just whatever brain spasm that comes from eating McDonald's all day and watching Fox and Friends <laughs> just totally upends it. So how did this uh, play out with Tillerson during the Qatari crisis? Well, yeah, I mean, this was the first time that it really became apparent, I think. Uh, that Tillerson and Trump didn't see eye to eye on a policy level, like on a fundamental, uh, you know, way that they view the world basis. Um, the the Saudis and the UAE and Egypt uh, and Bahrain all uh, came out last summer and announced that they were basically blockading Qatar. They were cutting Qatar off from everybody's airspace and. Uh, you know, international waters, and they were going to stop trading with Qatar, doing any diplomacy with Qatar. They were going to stop uh, their nationals from going to Qatar and Qataris from coming in, and you know, just the whole uh, the whole nine yards. And Tillerson, you know, as as you would expect, I think, you know, from any. U.S. Secretary of State, um, you know, he does have this sort of. Uh, oil baron's background where he's dealt with, you know, people like this, uh, the Gulf, you know, the Gulf types for a, a long time. And uh, he just wants to get deals done, right? Like he's not interested in litigating the, the arcane disputes between the Qatari and Saudi royal families. He just wants to get deals done. But I think any 
American Secretary of State or administration, any normal administration, uh, would recognize that this is – particularly now, but in general, uh, the United States does not win from Saudi Arabia and Qatar going at it uh, tooth and nail. Uh, It just destabilizes the Middle East a little more. It risks Qatar kind of – Getting you know into Iran's orbit, uh, it causes as it has caused you know some uh, sort of a hardening of uh, battle lines between Turkey and Qatar on the one hand, and the Saudis and Egypt on the other hand. So it's just like bad news all the way around for U.S. foreign policy. And so Tillerson was you know his response when it it the, the blockade first was announced was very measured. It was sort of you know we understand that the Saudis have. Uh, Issues with Qatari foreign policy, and the Qataris are, uh, you know, have have been working to kind of uh, address some of these issues. But you know, this is a GCC thing, and we want all the parties to come together and talk it out and negotiate this, and uh, you know, uh, everybody get on the same page. And then Trump <laughs> comes out, and I forget he had a, a foreign leader at the in the at the White House, and they were doing their joint press conference, and I can't remember who the foreign leader was. Was. Uh, but he, of course, gets asked by the, the press about the, the Saudi move and just goes off on this rant about Qatar and their support for terrorism. And, you know, I went over there and we all touched the orb and I met with King Salman and we talked about, you know, getting the countries in the region to stop supporting terror. And Qatar is the biggest defender, which, you know, is a little bit of revisionist. Uh, but, you know, he just gives this kind of like rambling, very intense intensely pro-Saudi answer that completely undermines what, what Tillerson is trying to do and sort of, uh, you know, cut the, cut things off and uh, tamp down the crisis before it really gets going. Uh, and, you know, t- to this day, then, uh, you have this bleeding wound, basically, in the Gulf, as far as the United States is concerned, uh, where this relationship has not been... Uh, fixed and the crisis is still going on. Um, and I think you can say to a, a, a large extent, it was that initial reaction that Trump had uh, that sort of emboldened the Saudis to say, well, uh, the president of the United States is in our camp. Uh, we can take a hard line on this. We don't have to listen to uh, what anybody else in Washington is saying. We don't have to listen to what any of our other allies are saying about talking to Qatar. We can just uh, you know, do what we want to do here, and we're going to have Trump's backing. Yeah, there, there was um, – Trump not only had that sort of you know, hot in the booth freestyle – I forget which leader he was with – but he was later at a fundraiser and he delivered one of his – famous jokes and he says uh you know the qataris would like me to pronounce the name of their country right well i'd like them to stop funding terrorism <laughs> it's like nailed it written fucking nailed written it, by mike huckabee's joke writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> donald nanan uh but um the uh, a tiller, uh, another tillerson thing i thought was very interesting was during the Iran nego- renegotiation things, because it was one of those things where there is there's a lot. Let's you know, obviously there is a shitload of confluence between neocon world and Trump's uh, hard the hard right attitude he ran on, and with the neocons they hate the Iran deal uh, because it in their mind legitimizes Iran in a way as if it were not a country before and. It doesn't do what they really want, which is to not allow Iran to have any regional influence. And for Trump and Trump world and like the Michael Flynn people, they hate it just because, you know, Obama is Neville Chamberlain. He's he's surrendering. This is bad for whatever reason. And they the Trump thing is to rip up the agreement, whereas the proprietist neocon thing is like to make the agreement into something it never was. But. When when Tillerson met with the Iranians at the UN, he was talking to the Iranian foreign minister and the foreign minister is sort of going, well, you know, this thing about us not building ICBM or not building these missiles or not funding Hezbollah and not being involved in, in Syria, this is not really in the treaty. 
you can't really levy new sanctions at us. And Tillerson explodes and goes, I'm not a fucking diplomat. And it's like, <laughs> you, you literally are. You're you literally the top the job, diplomat I mean, in the world. Like, yeah. Nobody held a gun to your head. This is your job, dude. Like most things there, it's Cohen Brothers because it's like, you know, the entire time going in, a lot of people were, even Democrats were like, well, Tillerson's a good choice. He has experience around the world. He's not a madman. He's not going to explode at the negotiation table. But you see when he can't just easily buy his way into getting what he wants, he's just – he's the same as Trump. He does the same thing that Trump does. Right, because he's not used to – I mean he's not used to that. He's not used to not getting his way and so he he explodes. When when he was picked, I mean there were a lot of people, again, sort of uh, looking at it relatively speaking in terms of who the other candidates for the the jobs seemed to have been or were rumored to have been uh there were a lot of people in the you know who are supportive of the the nuclear deal who were okay with this because okay with Tillerson because they felt like um you know he's probably not going to be uh you know firebrand regime change guy like a Flynn or a Bolton so he'll be a voice in the administration in favor of kind of uh, approaching things more moderately than that. And because he's an oil guy, maybe he'll recognize the possibilities for you know American companies to get involved in uh, the Iranian market now that these you know the sanctions are off and uh, that kind of thing you know foreign investment has become possible again uh, and I think he was I mean I, I he was by all accounts uh, one of the voices in the administration in favor of sticking by the deal and you know trying to negotiate with the Europeans over uh, things that we could do to Iran outside the scope of the deal, like sanctions over their missile program or over their uh, actions in the region. Uh, but he was in favor of maintaining the deal itself. It's just that Trump was, I mean, Trump stopped listening to him at some point. I mean, clearly stopped listening to him at some point. Uh, so he wasn't really going to be able to deliver that message anymore. So we're going to we're going to put a postscript on Tillerson's career and sort of look ahead at the absolutely sterling replacement in a bit. But just going going past the last year of amazing memories, what are your if you have to give somebody, you know, the 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 highlights of Tillerson's career, you have to you're making a scout tape because he's being, you know, other governments saw him and said he did such a good job <laughs> as Secretary of State. We're interested in having you as our foreign minister. What highlights do you put together for Tillerson? What what sums up the Rex Tillerson experience? I actually think, like, you know, uh, there are a couple of things. There's f- w- there's his. Uh, support for the Paris Agreement right before Trump <laughs> pulled out of the Paris Agreement, which was very early on and kind of set, helped set the tone for their relationship. Um, but I, I think there's no better highlight than the North Korea, uh, the way that these two uh, brain geniuses interacted over North Korea. Uh, you know, when you had Trump talking about raining fire and fury down on Kim Jong-un and Tillerson's off, you know, someplace else, usually on a trip somewhere outside of Washington, talking about we're leaving the channels open for negotiations. We want to keep, you know, uh, we want to communicate with with these guys. We want to hold open the possibility of talks. And then you had Trump go on Twitter (laughs) and like – publicly slammed Tillerson. <laughs> like, he talked about, you know, he's wasting his time. I don't know what he's telling you, know, what he wants to do here. And just like this unprecedented public rebuke of his secretary of state, which was insane because these are, the, these are the guys who are supposed to be representative of the president who appointed them. I mean, when a secretary of state, talks on the world stage, you're supposed to be able to assume that he's speaking on behalf of the president, or at least that they've like discussed what he's going to say beforehand. But with Tillerson, it was totally – that was totally not the case, which is just a, rid- a ridiculous state of affairs. And even until the end, uh, you know, when Trump – I got. I mean, it seems like 
it was six months ago, but I think it was just like last week that Trump, you know, blurted, you know, rushed himself into this summit with Kim Jong Un. Like the day before, you had Tillerson, who was heading off to Africa, telling reporters, you know, I don't, I don't think it's, you know, the time is right for a a, a serious high level negotiations with the North Koreans. And like the next day, Trump is like, eh, fuck you, I'm meeting with Kim. I just that that that. Uh, one issue is like a microcosm of the failure here, like the dysfunction in their relationship and Tillerson's failure as a secretary of state. Yeah. the th- uh, With the Kim thing, it's interesting because y- you have, I think the perfect send off note for Tillerson because Tillerson had told Trump, like, listen, you know, I have a lot of experience talking to guys like Kim. Uh, you have to show them that you can trust them first because even, you know, people are going to walk away, but if you have that initial trust, you can come back and they'll go, okay, we need to make a deal somehow. And for Tillerson, you kind of, there is like a little, there's a grain of wisdom there, but it's also like, do you think like making a deal with the North Korea, with the, with North Korea is the same as you just waltzing into Equatorial Guinea or Russia and just giving someone a suitcase of cash? <laughs> Because it's not. It's a little more I mean, complicated, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Exxon, like, Exxon got a lot done. They were one of the few American uh, oil concerns in contemporary history who could not get big dicked in Russia, which is to say, not like Royal Dutch Shell. They had a joint venture where the Russians just forced them to sell at a loss. Uh, but Exxon had this attitude like, no, you're not going to do that with us and we'll help you circumvent these sanctions, blah, blah, blah. And Tillerson had, had probably had many fond memories of doing things like this and thought, yeah, of course I can solve the North Korea problem. It's just like, you know, paying some bullshit Russian minister to <laughs> let me drill in his country and not to rob us, right? And for tr- – but it, it is – Again, the attitude of a man with a comprehensive process, an engineer, and for a man who has had this very crooked, evil process that he's taken everywhere in the world but is masked with a sense of propriety, it is just very poetic justice that he is in the end just soundly humiliated and unceremoniously tossed out by a man with no process ever. By a man who's just like, no, I'm the deal guy. I know how to do deals. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm the deal maker. Yeah. And not – I mean not just humiliated at the end, but the, just like the steady process of humiliation. It's like a thorough thing. I mean he was – for at least the first six months of the administration, he was like deputy – foreign minister to Jared Kushner, who's such a fucking dipshit. And he had to – I mean he had to go through that. It's just – I mean what what a thorough sort of uh, ruination of somebody's public image to to have to be Jared Kushner's water boy. It's the – it sort of reminds me of how people say Democrats so soundly deserve to lose. It's just a shame who they have to lose to. This administration is filled with people who deserve to be soundly humiliated and made to feel like shit. But it's just a shame who actually does it. It's a shame that Donald Trump is the one that has to do it and he's our president. Or it's a shame that Jared Kushner has to do it. (laughs) Oh, man. These are – it's regular, regular healthy times. We've just been having a good one for – Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Over a year. Exactly. I think the postscript for Tillerson that's interesting is – so after he leaves, everyone everyone goes – well, not everyone, but the the Russia Democrat and sort of never-Trump neocon holdovers are like, well, this is what he gets for standing up to Russia. Tillerson's good now. But before that, it was like Tillerson is Russia. He's done deals with Putin. And I think it, it – it, like obviously that's just stupid, but I think that – Tillerson is an agent of Putin thing. It betrayed this institutional stupidity about this whole thing. And it's that, yeah, you can look at Tillerson's time in Russia where he is able to bribe the right people so he can deal, so he can drill in the right places and make the right deals and not get big dicked by the Russian government as many of his other 
counterparts of the petroleum industry of the West did. But if you hyper-focus on that, you're like, oh, no, this is Putin's guy, right? He, he, he pulled this off. He has a relationship with Putin. But if you look at his entire career and you look at every guy like Tillerson, you go, wait, no, this is just international business. Right. This, this is just, just the way they all do All of these guys things. do everywhere. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's it's just used car salesmanship on a much larger and more lucrative stage. It's the same glad handing, you know, what can I do to get you into this deal today mindset. Yeah. And when Tillerson was actually in there, he was, you know, as you said, he was harder on Russia than Trump was in many ways. And it's not because he's like a principled guy. It's just, oh, this is, you know, all right, now I guess I have to do what I did for Exxon, but for America, I'm going to fight Russia's influence. And he wasn't able to buy his way into things as easily. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of what I think he saw was sort of expected of, you know, the, the what the media and, you know, the D.C. establishment wanted to hear, which has been, you know, Russia's bad. We should uh, we have to counter them. We have to stand up to them. And he, you know, he tried to do that. He just flip the switch because it's not like the people like that care about appearing consistent in any way. I mean, it's just whatever I need to do or say to, to get through the next deal. The only thing Tillerson stayed consistent on was, I mean, he demurred after the president said he would take an IQ test against him, demurred when <laughs> Trump contradicted him all the time. But the one thing that really got under his bonnet was when Trump, uh, told like a had a weird speech at the Boy yes, Scout thing, right? Right, <laughs> the Boy Scouts. That was the only thing, and that's what he called him the fucking moron after the the arms the nuclear briefing or whatever it was. Uh, he did stay consistent on that too. He never denied that he had called Trump a fucking moron. So you know, that's he, something. I, the original thing that he called Trump a moron about, everyone forgets this, but it was that Trump said we should include increase right. our nuclear weapons reserves by tenfold. Right, yeah. And somebody showed him a graph of like the de- reduction, in, the deliberate reduction in the, the U.S. nuclear arsenal. And he was like, we have to go back to the you know 1960s when we had 50,000 <laughs> nuclear warheads. And oh my God. Oh, man. But the most important thing is that he besmirched the good name of the Boy Scouts and good for Rex. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, definitely an institution that we must protect at all costs. So coming up next, we have my type of guy, a guy who looks like he should be wearing one of those weird pullover windbreakers with like Hoosier (laughs) written on them, sort of medium sexually harassing waitresses. Looks sort of like a dealership owner, but he's secretary. He's he's he was the head of the CIA, the CIA. and he's going to be Secretary of State. That's what right. do we have to look forward to with Mike Pompeo? Uh, so, I'm I, Mike Pompeo is a terrible dude. He's an out and out Islamophobe. Uh, I mean, he said things, uh, you know, like. Uh, all Muslims are potentially terrorists or potentially complicit in terrorism was what he said. Uh, you know, he's one of these guys who every time there's a terrorist attack, he's like uh, tweeting angry things at the Council for American Islamic Relations. Like, when are you going to denounce this? When are you going to denounce this? Huh? Huh? And, you know, he's just an awful, uh, awful guy with terrible views on the Middle East. Uh, but what tempers this for me is that he, he was already there like I, I i can't i know a lot of people are are worried about this because he's so you know he's more hawkish and he's got these very anti-islamic views and anti-iran views what the reason why i'm i'm not like you know as trip tripping out about this as much is uh that he was already in place like he was already the guy who was giving trump his daily briefings uh he was already much more involved in setting foreign policy than tillerson was because trump and tillerson weren't getting along uh so i i don't think this is going to represent a huge change it, it does kind of put you know this dumpy looking uh hate monger dude 
in place as America's, you know, uh, representative to the world. But on the other hand, we had already elected Donald Trump. So I don't think anybody had any illusions about the state of America uh, at this point anyway. Uh, so I just, you know, he's he's not uh, – the right guy for the job. Uh, there was, I think, there was an NBC editorial that they posted earlier today about his uh, Islamophobia disqualifies him from being Secretary of State. I mean, it should have disqualified him from being Director of the CIA, uh, even more so because the Director of the CIA kills people for a living. Like the uh, the Secretary of State only uh, enables and covers up the killing, but the Director of the CIA is actually responsible for killing people. And you would certainly hope not to have somebody who's prejudiced against uh, a billion people in the world in that job um, but you know he, he he's not the guy I would pick but I don't think that his appointment is going to do anything to change the trajectory of the uh, the Trump foreign policy yeah um, I the interesting thing about the sort of cavalcade of the Secretary of State's office is there is there's this huge amount of attention paid to it and this sort of hand-wringing of like uh, but this is the face that's going to represent America to the world. And it's like everyone all we already knows that Trump's representing America to the world. But the interesting the, – the Secretary of State position is sort of a cursed chalice because any Republican administration is just going to continue to choke its power out and choke out its funding as they've done since Nixon. Right. And you know, as you said, yeah, Pompeo had the capacity to do far more evil at the CIA. But, you know, thank God he's getting replaced by someone normal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah good thing that uh, there's nobody who's complicit in the worst <laughs> – one of the worst periods in CIA history who's going to take over for him. Uh, um, yeah, I – you know, he's got – I mean he's obviously still got the capacity to do uh, you know terrible things as Secretary of State via his influence with Trump. Uh, but he already had that influence. He was already doing those terrible things. I, I, it, it's not a change. It's not, for example, uh, as important or significant a thing to kind of get panicked about as the idea that Trump is about to bring John Bolton into the White House, which is fucking terrifying uh, because that's a that's an addition. I mean, that's a, a new voice coming in and, you know, potentially steering Trump in a uh, in an even worse direction. Could you uh, talk a little bit about some some harm that Bolton can cause as NSA? Well, I mean, the national security advisor is for most administrations anymore it's the number one kind of foreign policy voice that the president hears and that that makes sense to a certain extent because it's uh you know it's somebody who's in the white house every day oh you know constantly available to meet with the president or uh, to just have a quick chat with him um you know that kind of proximity gives the national security advisor more uh, leverage a potential influence than a director of the CIA or a, a secretary of state or even a you know secretary of defense um and you know over the last 50 years or so that office has grown uh, and the whole National Security Advise- Council has grown so massive and has expanded its capacity to such an extent that it's basically a parallel foreign policy operation happening in the White House, uh, kind of usurping things that used to, you know, roles that used to belong to the State Department or the Defense Department. Um, and, you know, Bolton, John Bolton in that position, uh, there's just it's it's terrifying. It would be terrifying with any president, but particularly one who doesn't have any fully formed thoughts in his head uh, and is easily kind of steered in one direction or another. Bolton, I, I can't even pigeonhole his ideology. It's just uh, you know he wants to go to war with everybody. He just craves it. Uh, you know, he was in favor of the Iraq war. He's been in favor of going to war with Iran. He's been in favor of going to war with North Korea. Uh, I, you know, he'd probably be in favor of going to war with, you know, you could name the country. I don't know that he would uh, object. Um, and he's 
also uh, apparently, I mean, from what we've heard about him, he's apparently, you know, for as gruff and as much of an asshole as he appears to be on TV and is uh, apparently as big of a, a dick as he's he is to his subordinates, he's uh, like a world-class DC uh, ass kisser. And so uh, he'll be very, I mean, assuming that he replaces H.R. McMaster, which is the hot rumor, uh, he'll be very uh, adept at kind of playing to Trump's ego and, uh, uh, you know, massaging that in order to get his uh, influence, you know, get, get, you know, him, get it, get it into Trump's ear, get his influence uh, into Trump's ear and, and steer the, the administration uh, toward his crazy desired aims. You know, there you have it, everybody. Um, John Bolton, as NSA, uh, if you have a Fortnite group that you play with, uh, now is the time to get mass married to them, Mooney style. Uh, Rex Tillerson, now a free man. You can invite him to your Fortnite DM. You can marry Rex as well. He has no further commitments. Um, you know, others of you who are, who are younger, who still have that part of your brain that can learn languages, now is the time to learn Mandarin. Uh <laughs> President G, I have always respected you. I would never do one of these podcasts about you. Please, please protect us. I love you. But uh, beyond that, sunny days ahead. Derek, thank you so much. Do you have anything to plug? Thanks, Felix. Uh, you know, just the usual, my blog, uh, attwiw.com. And, uh, you know, people want to support my work. I'm on Patreon, and uh, I'd love to have you guys there. I do a, a posts regularly and podcasts and all kind of fun stuff. So uh, please check it out. Derek's Patreon is great. We're going to put the uh, link to that. And, uh, and that's the way it was as well in the uh, show description. Derek, thank you so much. Thanks Felix. It's been a long day without you, my friend. And I'll tell you all about it when I see you again We've come a long way from where we began Oh, I'll tell you all about it